So last week's sermon was entitled, uh, wasn't really entitled, it was talking about when we get no's from God. And one of those action steps was we asked this question, is there, an, is there an area in your life where you need to take no for an answer from God? And we kind of pointed out the wisdom in that section that there's times when we do need to accept God's no. And then there are times, uh, as we'll be looking at today, when to not to take no for an answer. Um, one of those actions, one of the other action steps we had in last week's sermon was we asked this question to determine if there was an area of faith um, where we need to continue and that just continuing sometimes is an act of faith. And it, and it possibly could be that prayer, uh, this continuing going to God is one of those areas in which we need to continue to continue to act, act on faith. And, and so what I kind of want to look at today a little bit is just to kind of help us discern, you know, where do we take no for an answer and when do we not take no for an answer? especially in the world of prayer, because it seems to cause some some wisdom there. Uh, so if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18, we're going to look at a, a familiar parable there that's often used in the idea of persistence. We talked about how taking no for an answer is one of those places um, that really challenges our faith. Uh, John Piper has talked about the persistence of prayer being one of the areas that the, our faith, the genuineness of our faith is really tested. And so it's a parable that you're familiar with. Luke 18, starting with verse 1, tells us the what we generally call the persistent widow, the parable Jesus tells us parable. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but after he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous just said. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so let's take just a a couple of moments just to look at the parable kind of itself and break down this parable. Now, interestingly enough, and if you've read a lot of the parables of Jesus, you know, sometimes he doesn't tell why he's telling the parable. Sometimes an explanation comes sometime later. He'll get the disciples off to the side, like the sower in the seeds. He gets the disciples off to the side and he explains it to them what's going on. But interestingly, right in verse one of this parable, it tells us the reason for the parable. It just This is why he did this. He told them a parable to effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. The, the reason this parable is told is so that people will persist in prayer. So they'll continue to pray and not be discouraged. Now, why would people be discouraged in prayer? Because they ask for something and it doesn't happen. And it seems this kind of impossible feat, you know, like this guy pushing this this boulder up a hill, you know, that that this is an impossibility. And they pray and they pray and it doesn't seem to affect anything. It doesn't seem to change anything. And and that's a reality, apparently, all the way back in the first century. And Jesus tells this parable, keep praying, keep praying, don't give up and lose heart. And so this is the parable he tells them. And in the parable, there's two people. First, the first character is the widow, 
right? Um, and I guess you and I realize that we should be identifying with the widow in this parable. This is, this is our representative in the story. Uh, interestingly enough, widows in first century Jerusalem would have been among the most needy and helpless people in society. Now, this is someone who had no one to advocate for them. They're, they're a widow. They had, apparently they're, they're dependent upon other people to provide for them. And they have someone who's out to get them. And, and, and there's just nowhere for them to turn. And so she turns to this, this judge to help her. Now, if we see that rightly, we realize, and the first step in our prayer, in our prayer life, is to recognize our need. You know, that, that we're really needy. We're desperate. And that when we go to God, we need to come at him from this widow perspective. I need you. I need what you can do, only what you can do, and only you can do it. And if you don't do it, it's not going to get done. You know, and and we need to to really put ourselves in that helpless, hopeless, desperate state when we come into the Lord with prayer. That this is something you must do. And if you don't do it, there's no one else to do it for me. The other character is the judge. And the scriptures give us some descriptions of the judge, what he's like. You know, first of all, it tells us he didn't care about God or people. He was no respecter of either. He didn't care about God in heaven. You know, apparently he was an atheist. And because he didn't care about God, he didn't care about people. There's a continuum we're going to see today uh, that's pretty interesting about how people relate to God is is usually and often reflected in how people relate to other people. That there's this continuum throughout history. And if you don't care about God, then that's an easy thing not to care about people. And, and he didn't care about either one. He just was apparently cared about himself. The other thing it tells us is that he is unwilling. He's not really wanting to answer this widow's uh, request. You know, he's that's... He doesn't have a heart that really cares about her, so he doesn't care about her. And since she's just a widow anyway, she has no political influence. She has no real power. She's really a nobody. He can completely ignore her, and it doesn't matter. And so he's just unwilling to really do anything about her. And we find out that he's he needs to be persuaded. That 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 it wasn't going to happen unless she wore him down, unless she. She beat him down that that he was a, a needed. He had to have someone kind of strong arm him into doing what he should do. So how does this parable encourage us to keep praying? Well, the encouragement to keep praying is based on the contrast between the judge and God. That's what it says in verse seven. And will not God, will not God be different than this judge? So here's an interesting assumption that Jesus makes in telling this parable. I'm not sure he should assume it today if he was here telling it today. But he he assumed in telling this parable that people knew enough about God about his character, about who he was, about his actions, about about how he felt about things. Jesus is assuming they know enough about God to know he's nothing like the judge. That that he's not, uh, that God does care about God and people. That Jesus cares about the Father. That there's this care about the deity and about people. 
where the judge didn't care about God or people. Jesus does. And God does. And he expected everybody to know that. God loves you. We have to tell people that today. We have to try to convince people of that today. We have to let them know that that God cares for you. And we are probably maybe even losing the battle sometimes in the conviction that God cares about them. But they didn't. But he assumed they knew that right up. He assumed that they knew God was willing, that God wanted to answer their prayers, that God wanted to do what was right, that God desired justice, you know, that that where the judge was unwilling and he didn't really care, God does. And, And that won't God do be different than this? It's this contrast that makes us want to run to God because he's willing and he wants to and he cares. And finally, he doesn't need to be persuaded. We don't have to strong arm God. We don't have to wear him down. We don't have to make him so uncomfortable. He's not sitting in heaven going, you know, if they don't really get on me, I think I'm just going to sit in the lazy boy today. No, he's willing. He wants to. He doesn't need to be persuaded. He's different than the judge in every possible way. It goes on in verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice speedily. And so when we pray to God in areas that we just keep coming, we can pray with confidence that, that this is a completely different God. A God who cares, a God who's willing, and a God who doesn't need our strong arm tactics to get him there. So let's start to put these things together. The key to knowing how to accept no and not to accept a no. So last night week we were talking about taking God's no when things didn't go. And so let me draw a couple of keys so we can kind of, where are we at? The no of God or the no's of God may come in things we want or request. That when we want something, when we're requesting a particular things for ourselves, the we of us, that's when the we may get a no from God that we have to accept. Now, let me give you a couple of examples, some places that might be. Healings. We all know, if you don't know this, it won't be long, you'll find this out, that sometimes God doesn't heal everybody. Right? The Bible tells us there's a time set. And we can pray and pray and pray, and sooner or later... It's going to happen that we're going to get a no when it comes to healing somebody. Now, most of us are satisfied if God will just say yes long enough that they've lived a what we deem is a good, long life, you know, and they're finally so sick and, and, and things are so bad for them. But the only better thing now is for them just to go on and be with Jesus. But sometimes it doesn't happen that way, right? Sometimes tragedy, sometimes people... In the height of their life. Some people we determine young. And the older I get, the younger old gets. You know what I'm saying? 60 used to be old. Now it's pretty young. You know, 70 is getting younger all the time. And 80 looks like, you know, that's you just starting to live about 80 to me already. And so the older I get, the younger old gets. So our definitions of what a good old age is kind of varies on where we are in age ourselves right 
But sometimes we just know when it comes to healing, God says no. And we're just going to have to accept that. We, we can request and want all day. I want you all to live. If I never, ever, ever have to do another funeral at First Baptist Church Clarion, it will be okay with me. But the probability is, the actuality of it is, is that we're going to run into some no's along the way. Right? And so we have to accept that. Protection. That's an all-inclusive idea of the idea that nothing ever bad happens to Christians. We all pray for protection. None of us want bad things to happen to us. None of us want bad things to happen to anybody else in this church, right? You know, and if you've been here over the last three weeks, we've gotten a couple no's, if you haven't noticed, right? Isn't that right, Vicki? <laughs> Ivan going to the hospital the other night. You know, and I could go probably row by row, seat by seat and say, yeah, we wanted, we didn't want that to happen. We didn't want that to happen. We didn't want that to happen. And God deemed to give us a no, even though we didn't request it. And we have to accept that. How about the areas of provision? I think this is one of the really tough ones because the widow was dealing with provision. She needed something provided for her, some justice against an adversary. And this is just where we got to be really careful when we pray for provision and when we're deciding whether this is a no from a request we want or or need we have. And it really comes down to that great uh, dividing line that we all know the difference between wants and needs, right? And we request a lot of things we want, but is it something we really need? And so we're going to have to put our faith in God in that area that he knows the difference because our hearts often were like, I really need whatever. And it may not be what I really need. And so there comes a real trust in God and a really trusting what we've been talking about a lot. The goodness of God when it comes to accepting a no, when it comes to something we determine we need. And God may say, yeah, you might think you need it, but I understand it's just something you want. And he can make that decision between our provisions. This is where our genuineness is really, and the motivations that we have really start to matter. And then the last place we may have to accept a no from God is our plans. You know, I have this planned and I want to do this. And, and quite often I'm afraid to even myself, I pray for God to bless my plans and not lead me into his plans. And no's come sometimes when God says, yeah, I know what you're doing and what you want to do, but here's what we're going to do. Uh, there's a good story in the Bible about Paul who said, hey, look, I'm going to go do a mission trip for God over here. And God goes, that's fine and well, but that's not where you're going. You're going over here. And so even our plans have to be suspect to God's no sometimes. And so it's in these areas, our request for healings, protection, provision, plans, and in other areas possibly that we may get to know. Now, we get a lot of yeses in these areas, too. But we may get the no from God in these areas. So what about the areas where we don't accept no? So let me put it. So things that we request, things we want might be the areas where we get no. But things God wants, things that we know the Bible says this is what God wants. These are areas we can and should persist in prayer. When we look in the scripture, say this is something God wants. We need to stick with it in that area because it's not God saying no in that area because it could be people saying no to God 
in that area. And that's the no we don't want to accept. The no of people. And I'll give you some examples of what I'm talking about so you understand what I'm saying. First place that we can be persistent in prayer. I think you could pray for this every day for the rest of your life, never accepting a no because God's not going to say no in this area, but people might say no in the area of salvation. You can spend every day. I am confident in saying if you prayed for people's salvation every day for the rest of your life, you would be doing a good thing. The Bible, I think, makes it clear. This is from second. I'm sorry. This is from first Timothy chapter two. I've got verses one through seven here. This is verse three and four. First of all, I'm going to read the whole passage for you. First of all, then I urge you that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that you lead tranquil and quiet lives of godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God has a desire for people to get saved. And I believe it's people choosing not to get saved. They, they're saying God, they're saying no to God. And so our job is to continue to pray that God will do the miracle of salvation, that he will work on their hearts, that he will send the spirit, that he will convince them to stop saying no and start saying yes. And we can pray for that each and every day. Now, I didn't mention this. I meant to mention this at the beginning before I go any further. Our action steps for today's sermon is going to be pick one of these things, one of these five areas that I'm going to highlight that we can be persistent in prayer. Pick one and, and commit yourself to pray for it for a week or a month or, or even until it happens. Because I think we can pray consistently and persistently in these areas and it honors God. So one is salvation. So is there someone in your life that you think needs to be saved. Is there someone in your life you want to get saved? Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. Because God wants that. And I think we can spend the rest of our time. Now I know at least one story in the church. I'm going to see if there's any others that will. How many of you believe you came to salvation. Because of the persistent prayer of someone else in your life. If you would raise your hand. Raise it high so everybody can see. I know Randy tells me the story for a long time. He's told me his mom prayed for him for years and years and years. 30 years longer maybe, Randy, give or take, about that before his no turned into a yes. And the hands of many more people have testified the same thing. And so the persistent prayer of us in this area is a good thing to stick with. Kin to salvation, another thing that God desires, repentance. People to turn from their sin and turn to God. This is something God wants. And so if you know someone trapped in a sin, if you happen to be trapped in a perpetual sin, if, you, if you're struggling with an area in your personal life or you know someone who's struggling with a way that they're kind of not going God's way, they're not doing things God's way, and they, you want them to turn back to God, that's something to pray for. Repent. Turn back to God. First Peter uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, and 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and heavens will pass away in the roar of heaven's body. The Lord is not slow. He's patient because He wants people to repent and come back to Him. I would dare say, if we took some time to think about it, we could probably identify some repentance in our own life, and maybe some repentance in somebody else's life, maybe close to us, that we should be praying for consistently. Turn back to the Lord. Another area that the Lord really highlights that I think we could pray a whole lot for, forgiveness. Forgiveness. In Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter, verses 14 and 15, the Scriptures highlight how important God thinks forgiveness is. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's a pretty scary verse. And it shows the level of importance that God puts on forgiveness. He wants people to receive his forgiveness. And he wants those who've received his forgiveness to give the same forgiveness to other people. I've lived long enough in this world to know we mess up. I mess up. You mess up. We do things wrong. We hurt people's feelings, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally. Sometimes our best laid plans are the pain of someone else. And there's lots of forgiveness needed. And we should be among the world the most forgiving people because we understand forgiveness. It's been given to us. And so if there's an area in your life where you need to forgive someone or you need to seek someone else's forgiveness... Or someone else needs forgiveness. Or or somebody needs to understand the forgiveness of God. There's another one. Or receive the forgiveness. Or or a brother or sister needs now to give that forgiveness to someone else within the community. There's a lot of forgiveness needed being prayed for. And one of the most difficult things I think I've seen over and over. One of the places in the counseling that I've done. In in the world that I've lived in, in. In the heartache that I've seen. Forgiveness is one of the major struggles people have even Christians. And so we, if we all chose to spend the next month just praying, make us a forgiving people, make me a forgiving people, help me forgive and receive forgiveness and forgive forgiveness. If, if we did that, it would revolutionize much of the world because most of the world says forgive, but never forget. Most of them say, don't ever forgive, watch out for yourself. And that was, you, you got your one shot at me. I'll never forget it now. It's a self-protective, grudge-holding society in which we live. And once you've wronged me, I'll never have use for you again. Which is contrary to the Scriptures. And so we could spend a lot of time praying for forgiveness. Because it's people refusing to forgive and not pass on what they've been given in the Christian story. The fifth one. Reconciliation. Which is the step beyond forgiveness. <laughs> you know, we, we forgive and then we're reconciled. We come back together as if nothing ever happened. We love each other. We reestablish our relationships. And the scriptures are clear that God over and over is a God of reconciliation, of bringing things back together. One verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 18 and 19. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry 
of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's trespasses against them. And he has committed us to, uh, committed to us the message of reconciliation. First of all, our job, our ministry is one of reconciliation. Bringing people and God back together. This is what God's plan was. Bringing us back together. We were together in the beginning. Sin separated us. The good news, the gospel of what Jesus Christ did is he's bringing man back together with God. That's the message of reconciliation. Jesus is all about it. But remember the continuum that I pointed out earlier. The Bible is clear. How we relate to God is also how we relate to people. In 1 John, he says this, don't say you love God and don't love your brother. It can't be that way. So don't say you're reconciled to God and not reconciled to your brother. And so the reconciliation that humans have with God spills over into our relationships with one another. God always wants reconciliation. It's his number one plan to bring things back together. It's his overall arching plan and he gets the most glory in reconciliation. And so whenever we can come back together, reestablish relationships, that's what God wants. Perfect example within the New Testament, Christianity created this crazy, wild, unbelievable reconciliation. It's described to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. I'm going to read it to you. For he himself is our peace, who has made two, the two, one, and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of, of commandments and decrees. He did this to create himself a new man out of two, thus making peace and reconciling both of them to God in one body through the cross, by which he extinguished their hostility. If you don't know, I'll tell you what he's talking about. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. That the same God is the God of them all. And what God did was reconcile these two diametrically opposed groups of people into one. Now Jews who hated Gentiles and Gentiles who hated Jews... We're now brothers brought back into reconciliation. He said, this is an example of what God wants to do in the world. If he can bring these two opposing parts together, then he wants reconciliation. And so we can pray that people would be reconciled to one another, that re relationships would be reestablished, that forgiveness would flow and it would go into this rebuilding of relationships of unity and love and that brings us to the last thing we can continue to pray for if we forgive we reconcile that brings about unity and this is something god wants within his church especially he wants us to be unified i read to you one scripture from ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 until we attain the unity of faith. This is a section of scripture talking about why we have the church. He's given some apostles and some prophets and some pastors and some teachers and some evangelists. All these, all these different roles within the church and within the body of itself. The whole part of the existence of the church is to be a place of unity of faith. That we come together 
and we're unified. We're not unified by our personalities. We're not unified by our histories. We're not unified by all the belief systems that we have. You know, our way of seeing the world, what we think is the most important, what they think is the most important. We're unified by our faith. And so it is a beautiful thing when you can bring all these people, different backgrounds, different personalities, different thoughts, and different ways of doing things, and they're all able to get over all those things and be unified in their call of service to the Lord. This is what God wants. He wants us to be unified. And we spend every day praying, unify us, unify us, would be a good time spent in prayer. Maybe the church should have been praying for that a long time ago. Maybe there'd be a few less denominations if we prayed for a little bit more unity back in the day before we started having so many different ways of doing things. This is something God thinks is important. And really important today. Of all days, for me to preach this prayer or preach this sermon and talk about unity, today of all the days in our calendar year or our monthly calendar, Unity is particularly important. One of the greatest passages talking about unity uh, happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is also the place we get the instructions for the Lord's Supper. And preceding all those instructions for the Lord's Supper, this is what uh, Paul writes. He says, in the following instructions and instructions he's going to give on the Lord's Supper, I have no reason to praise to offer you because... Because your gatherings do more harm than good. First of all, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in my part, I believe it. And indeed, there must be difference among you to show which of you are approved. He's correcting the church that they're doing communion wrong because they come to the table being disunified. There's quarrels among them. And he's like, this has got to be taken care of before we go to communion. You've heard me refer to it many times, right? Common union. This is, this is where our faith is united. And that we need to pray for unity among today of all days because this is when we proclaim our unity to God and our unity with one another. That it's the one bread and the one cup that makes us one. You're all part of the same body, joined together by faith in Jesus Christ. And so today is a day for us to pray for unity, if there ever is a day, because this is the day of our unity. So there you go. You can pick one. I mean, you can pick two if you want to, really, but or all five, but... Just ask and pick one of these areas. Salvation, you know somebody. Repentance, you know a struggle you have or somebody. Forgiveness that's needed. Reconciliation, some relationship that needs to be restored or unity. Pick one and commit. If you have, if you have the, uh, the list, if you have the sermon notes, this is what it says. I feel led to pray for blank. You pick one. For whatever reason, whether it's somebody's name or sin or unity or whatever it is, and I commit to do it for a week, every day for a week, a month, until. Maybe you just, 
I'll continue to pray for this until the Lord says, I don't have to pray for it anymore. I think we can do that, resting assured that these are things that would please God. These are things God wants. These are things that we need. And we can continue, we can be like that widow. We can be encouraged to continue to pray for these things. Because these aren't our requests. These are God's requests of us. That we would do these things. That people would do these things. That Christians would do these things. And we pray that we will say, yes, Lord, I will tell people about salvation. Yes, Lord, I will repent and pray for people's repentance. Yes, Lord, I will forgive. Yes, Lord, I will be reconciled. And yes, Lord, I will be unified. So in the few moments we have as we prepare to come to the table, I encourage you to to look at that list. Ask God that the key to that answer was, I feel led by God to pray for this. I can promise you, I, I can tell you very clearly, these are things God wants. So which are the desires of God? Will you pray that comes to pass?